Today's passage is in Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Amen. Amen. You may be seated, church. If you have a copy of the scriptures, would you grab them? And open up with me to Luke chapter 5, verses 17. See you, fourth and fifth graders. Hope you all have a great class. Love seeing you all up there worshiping on the front row. Um, Luke chapter 5. If you are new with us or maybe you're new to church, maybe you got invited and you don't have a copy of the scriptures, uh, we have Bibles out in the connect table, on, uh, uh, out in the, the lobby out there. We would love for you to go out there to grab one of those. It's our gift to you. We want you to have a copy of the scriptures that you can mark in, that you can read. But we believe that just like we heard read over us today, the words of Jesus are powerful. They are authoritative. They are the very words of life that provide healing and provide wholeness for us. And so we... Uh, would love for you to have your own copy of God's word. Uh, if you are a regular with us, just a, a note, maybe you, uh, uh, maybe you don't bring your Bible or a copy of the scriptures. I want to encourage you to do so as we dig in and, and just mark up your Bible, or maybe you do that on an iPad. I want to encourage you to engage with the text as we open up and walk through these truths together uh, as a church. So Luke chapter five, we've been journeying through this gospel. It's been uh, a few months that we've been walking through this wonderful, wonderful gospel as Luke, the physician, Luke, the historian pens this amazing gospel narrative for us uh, of the life, the birth, uh, and the ministry, the death, and ultimate resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have been with us, if you've been journeying with us, you would have been amazed at the continual glories of Christ as we journey through this. That Jesus, as we've walked through this, could stand in the synagogue of Nazareth just a few weeks ago as we read it. He could open up the scroll of Isaiah the prophet and he could claim that today the, this is fulfilled in your sight, claiming that he was the Messiah that he could go into the synagogue, the very next paragraph, and he could cast out a, a demon, the devil, 
that he could bring himself uh, and he could engage with men and women afflicted with demonic oppression and he could heal great disease. He could cast out these demons. He could heal all of these people afflicted, all of these people on the fringes of society and he could heal them. That he would meet Peter, this fisherman, And he would say, Peter, your life is going to be changed. No longer will you just go fishing for fish. You're going to be a fisher of men, meaning I have a plan and purpose for your life. And I'm sending you out on mission for my purposes, for the glory of God and your great joy. And Peter uh, doesn't even know what he's in for. And then Jesus proves it last week by taking and healing a leper. Uh, and giving him wholeness and cleansing that he so desperately needed. And only Jesus can do this. And so if you maybe uh, walked in here and you weren't a Christian or you aren't a Christian and you're just maybe hearing these stories for the very first time and you would have heard all of these messages over the last few weeks, you would have been amazed at all these things that Jesus has done, all these things that Jesus has accomplished, all these things that he has fulfilled And you would have said to yourself, or you would have been thinking to yourself, based on just what Luke has given to us in these scriptures, if this is really true, if this is the truth of the word of God, you would have been amazed at this individual who fulfilled all the promises of Israel. He was the fulfillment, he was the forerunner, or he's the one the forerunner spoke of. He delivered all these people in, in oppression by his mercy and his love and his power and authority. And he would have said, what a marvelous person this Jesus is. You would have been struck with uh, all of the prophecies that surrounded him, all of the angels, all the things that they said to Mary, to Zacchaeus, to Simeon and Anna in the temple, all the things quoted from the Old Testament that Jesus is the fulfillment of. And then he proves it again and again as we have walked through his journey and his ministry as he launches it publicly. And then you would have said, this miraculous person, this one that has fulfilled all of these things, And if I were to come to you and you had just heard these, you just engaged with all of these wonderful stories of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I would say, well, what do you think comes next? What's going to happen next with Jesus? As now he's on the scene, he's proven who he is, he's declared who he is, he said, this is who I am, I'm the fulfillment of all of the promises of the Old Testament, I'm the one whom everyone has been waiting for, I am, I am the Messiah incarnate in flesh, God incarnate into man, fully God and fully man, and I've come to do all and fulfill all the Old Testament has, has said of me, and he's proving it by his miracles and by his mercies and his love. I think we would, we would say, well, everyone is going to bend the knee to this one. He's, he's arrived. This is good news. This is incredible. Most assuredly, Israel and every, the nations that surround would bow and worship this Messiah that has come. Who could refuse so great a salvation? Who could refuse so great a message of cleansing and forgiveness through this one whom we've been waiting for? But that's not what happens as we continue on. And then from this paragraph, 
For the next five paragraphs, we are going to encounter, beginning in verse 17 in chapter 5, we're going to encounter five paragraphs of conflict. Conflict, 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 conflict. And the reason we're going to see conflict arise and the reason we're going to see conflict come, uh, come about in the ministry of Jesus is it, is it is not conflict between Jesus and the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. It's not a conflict between Jesus upending the Old Covenant and the Old Covenant promises of Messiah. Jesus clearly shows and proves that he is the fulfillment of all of these by all of his words, by all of his actions, by all of the prophecies fulfilled in his life. It's not a conflict of the old covenants and the new covenants coming. It is a conflict between the religious of the day and the message and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The religious elites and the religious of the day, the churchgoers, the evangelicals of the day, if you will, are in great stark conflict against what Jesus is saying and what he is doing. And if you were a Gentile, remember Luke, the physician, uh, wrote this as a Gentile, two Gentiles saying that they can come to know and treasure and love and be saved by Jesus, you would begin to get an understanding of what the church is through the ministry of Jesus. You would get a clear picture of this person of Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of the old covenant and that he came and he proved it again and again. And yet you would also see the corruption of the religious of the day renouncing Christ as Messiah. And so here, as we begin these next, this next little uh, mini-series within the Gospel of Luke, if you will, we're going to see conflict. We're going to see conflict with Christ and religion. Um, and as we walk through this, this is not just conflict between Christ and Judaism, it was of its day, but it's a great conflict with Christ in all human religion. And what he says and how he says it and how he lives it out. Let me explain this a little bit better, just to maybe set the stage for us. Uh, maybe to give us maybe an analogy that might help wrap our minds around exactly what's happening. See, um, the purpose of religion, the purpose of the old covenant and all that had happened previously and this longing and this waiting and hope that Messiah would come uh, that contained all of the promises and all of the prophecies and all of the pictures of the temple, all of the worship, all of the signs of sacrifice, all of the things uh, that happened in the Old Testament were pointing to the reality of a Messiah to come that would fulfill all of these wonderful promises, all of these wonderful pictures, all of these wonderful um, all of these wonderful prophecies that we have in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. And so what was meant to happen is through understanding the promises and the prophets and the picture of the temple, the sacrificial system, all of these things in the religious past, what they would do, what they were purposed for was pointing us forward to the one that was to come and he has arrived. 
And it was like uh, when the sun rises, the stars disappear out of the glorious light of the sun, right? And so all these other things were stars that were burning that were pointing us to our hope of a greater reality come. And that is the sun will rise and, and overshadow that which was past. And it would be a fulfillment of all that we were hoping for. The, the old would disappear and the fulfillment of all of it would come into full reality, and so when Jesus came, what was, to, what was supposed to happen was that he would be received and all of these uh, signs and all of these pictures and all of these windows would disappear and it would prop up the reality of the, the Messiah, the hoped one, the one with whom we've been waiting for, Jesus. But what happened was simply not that. This period between the Old Testament and the New Testament as God's people were waiting and between Malachi and Matthew, you had a group of religious leaders. You had a group of men uh, and they began to sort of, for lack of a better word, evolve. They were called the separated ones or we know them in our scriptures as the Pharisees or the Sadducees. And they initially had an important job. They had an, an important task. And the Pharisees, who we meet and we're going to encounter again and again, which is why I'm explaining who they are and what they're doing uh, as we journey through the Gospel of Luke, they had an important task, these separated ones. And they had a job of bringing God's people back to the fundamental realities of the Old Testament so that their hope, that God's people's hope, would be fixed on and waiting for and hoping for a Messiah that they would uh, adhere to the things that God had called them to so that we would be a people, that they might be a people separated and holy waiting for the Messiah to come and ready for a Messiah to come. But they became perverse in what they became. Um, they twisted their roles and responsibilities. They added things on. They bolted all sorts of rules and regulations on that didn't need to be there. It would be much the same uh, as if you owned a piece of property or maybe you had a piece of family property. You had a big old ranch, 5,000 acre ranch somewhere. Uh, I don't know, pick your favorite place, Montana, the hill country, California vineyard, whatever you want to call it, right? And you had this in your family. Uh, you couldn't get there yet, but one day you would go occupy this place and this land. And so in between you arriving there and setting up home and setting up your reality and setting up all the things you wanted to happen on this piece of property, this place, you brought in someone, a custodian or a steward of the land that was to care for it, to help make sure the animals were provided for and fed, to make sure uh, the fields were watered, the crops grew as you had instructed, to make sure uh, that the management of the land was ongoing and kept and cultivated just right so that when the arrival of the owner came, it was prepared and ready to be handed off to its rightful owner. But instead of being welcomed, um, this custodian of your property that you put in charge, that you gave responsibility to, forgot who you were. It had been a long time. He got comfortable being there. He liked it. He liked the property. Um, 
Uh, and rather than putting your brand on the cattle, he put his own. He stamped them with his own brand. These are my cattle. I'm gonna start, I'm gonna gate them and I'm gonna care for them in a way that makes sense to me. <laughs> he took down your sign and he put his sign, his name over the ranch, right? He's like, this is my land. I've been here long enough. I'm gonna, this is my place now. And I've made home here. And, and rather than uh, waiting for you to arrive to set up your place and the place that you were preparing for to arrive and set up, he built his own. And he set up walls and fences, and put up new, new signs and new placements. Um, and essentially he took your place. And who was meant to be a custodian was meant to disappear when you arrived and pass the keys off as a faithful good steward of that which was commanded of them. Rather, that person by their own arrogance, pride, and ambition perverted the one job that you gave them. And when you came, he refused to honor you or acknowledge you. And so you sent uh, your field hands to grab him and to talk some sense into him and to get him to repent and understand what he had done, but uh, he fought. Until finally, until finally, in light of the situation, you thought, you know, I'm sending my heir, the very one who I want to come onto this land, who I have saved it for, who I have been preparing it for. I'm sending my very son, the one whom they know, the name of the, the ranch's namesake is going to go, and he's going to take back that which is rightfully his. And this custodian and steward, not only did he buck up against your very son and heir of that land, he actually uh, responded in violence against him and killed him and threw him off the ranch. Um, this is the picture and this is what is happening in the fabric of the religious elite and the Lord Jesus Christ as he arrives on the scene. This is what happened with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and even the very priesthood. In fact, Jesus himself even tells a parable about this in Matthew 21, about a vineyard, about a man that planted a vineyard that uh, was someone was put in charge to protect and provide for it. But when the vineyard owner came, they refused to honor him. He even sent his only son and they killed him. So this story that we are about to encounter here in Luke chapter five is an old story. Um, it's a story of the religious, the ones who, who got a little bit of power and they become greatly corrupted as to what that meant to be and the job they were tasked with. And so what we're gonna see in the weeks moving forward is a great conflict between Christ and religion. Between Christ and and religion. In each conflict, in each controversy, so to speak, that's recorded in Luke's gospel will follow a similar format. You're going to see a revolutionary pronouncement of Christ. He's going to say something that no one else has ever said. He's going to declare something that no man had ever said before. And had he said it and he wasn't the Messiah, he would have been killed for blasphemy. He's going to say it and then he's going to prove it. 
He's going to say it, and then he's going to prove it. So he's going to make a revolutionary statement. He will say things like his very words can pronounce a man forgiven. That's today's story. Through nothing that he does, through no actions of his own, through no righteous efforts of his own, my very words, Christ will say, will pronounce him forgiven. He will state that men can come to God not in the way that they had thought before, but in a way uh, that he will say, and he will prove it, and he will eat and drink in a fellowship with the lowest rungs of society, and that they can be made right by simply believing in this one that they're with, Jesus. Um, the Pharisees will begin to look at his disciples. They'll begin to sort of see these guys that are following him around and these women that are following him around and they'll marvel and they'll ask questions like, why don't they fast? And why don't they show it to everyone? Why do they always look so happy? Why, don't they, why aren't they like have a long face and act like they're uh, sad like you're supposed to be when you're weeping and fasting? And he'll make a statement like this and he'll say things like it's because their bridegroom is with them. Um, and you're going to see conflict happen. And you're going to see problems arise with the religious and the words of Jesus. And I think, church, real quick, before we jump into the text uh, for a few minutes that we have this morning left, I think it's easy to sort of hear this and say, those Pharisees, they just don't get it. They're so foolish. How could they miss it? I can't believe they would do this. I can't believe they've missed him. But church, Luke writes this in such a way that I think we see ourselves in a lot of these accusations and a lot of these things that bristle up against us because it calls into question our entire, especially here in the Bible Belt South, our religious resume. But God should love me because I've done all of these things since I was a boy. And you're telling me he'll go dine with the lowest of the low? They shouldn't even be at the table. And it makes us mad. The same it made them mad. It makes us mad. So I think we're to see in these a bit of a mirror and not quickly dismiss it as those foolish Pharisees. They just don't get it. Church, don't be so quick to dismiss because I think we're supposed to see this as a mirror of our own selfish hearts and at times where we twist the ministry message and meaning of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we can set up boundaries and fences and walls that sometimes don't belong and we hem ourselves in and we'll only associate over here because they look like me, they talk like me, they think like me, and they live like me. And that's a dangerous place to exist all the time. All right, off my soapbox. Stay with me. Verse 17. Here we go. I'll go quick, maybe. Uh, one of those days, 
As he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal, meaning he was not merely just there to teach. The power of the Lord was with him, and so he was, he was uh, there to do more than just teach. He was to bring about and to, and to put on display his supernatural power, divinity, and authority that only Christ possesses. And so in verse 18, and Behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof to let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. So there's these friends, they have a man who is paralyzed. Uh, culturally, so some understanding. If you were paralyzed in the day, a lot of times it was thought that uh, it was because of your sin that you were uh, stricken with these physical ailments, these physical abnormalities. So paralysis would have been one of these. So this this person would have been a social outcast. They wouldn't have been able to work. They would have uh, probably had a life of simply begging. They this this one had some friends that were with him, and they heard about this one Jesus. This one who heals. This one that seems to uh, meet and engage and talk with those who are on the bottom rung. They weren't just at the top shelf of the religious elite. And this one said, I've got to meet this one, Jesus. But there's so many people, there's so many religious people wanting to hear what the magic man Jesus might say this time. And they can't get to him, so they just tear a hole and the, the roof of the house, which I imagine would make the landowner a little upset, but they don't get into that. And they just lower the guy down somehow on his mat, right in front of Jesus. This is what's happening here. So religious and probably non-religious are, are sort of flooding into this place. And something to point out here that I find interesting, one of the themes of Luke's gospel as he writes it is that uh, that seekers of God, those who want to get close to Jesus, those who hear of the mercy and love of Christ, long to be near him and next to him again and again and again and again. We're going to have a similar story that these seekers of God frequently have to work through the religious crowds that are blocking them from getting to Jesus because of their uh, proximity. And so the seeker of God through Luke's gospel, one of the many themes in this gospel was kept from Christ because of the religious crowd that gathered around and prevented them from getting to Jesus. I just want to get close to Jesus. But the religious set up their walls even in front of the seekers to get to him. You have it here in the story we just read. I can't get to him. Well, tear a hole in the roof and they find other ways. Mary Magdalene couldn't get into the house to see Jesus and anoint his feet because of the religious crowd. Zacchaeus, he couldn't, he couldn't see Jesus, all this one he'd heard about. There's all these crowds pressing under him, he couldn't get to him, so he climbs up in a tree just to get a glimpse of him because he can't get to him. This happens again and again and again in Luke's gospel, and I think it's meant to show us something, even in the way that it's written. This is a side note. This one's for free, that... Church, let's not be a church, let's not be a people that prevent those that need and are seeking the intervention, healing, and forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ from entering into this place because of the walls we set up. 
and because we don't think maybe they deserve to. Let's be a people that, that open wide the doors to the community around us and say, come in and hear of the one who saved the foremost of sinners, me. And rejoice in him who sets captives free. Only he can do it. Let's not block the way of those in our midst and our communities and our workplaces from coming and seeing and treasuring this one that has come that by his word alone can forgive and heal. Verse 20, and when he saw their faith, he said, man, let's see, is verse 20 up there? Can we put verse 20 up there? And he saw their faith, he said, man. Now, other translations uh, render this friend. Uh, The ESV gives us man. I think if you have the NIV or maybe the NASB, I believe it renders it friend. I like friend, uh, and I think for a few reasons, uh, because man feels a little impersonal. Um, and, I th- and I think what's happening here, and I think the, the flavor of what Luke is trying to help us understand, remember the lowest on the totem pole, this paralytic who was uh, sentenced to a life of begging, um, was, was, was given this sentence of uh, paralysis because of his sin or maybe his father's sin or his grandfather's sin, would have not been considered a friend to anyone. And Jesus, seeing this man lowered down in a hole in the roof, looks at him and says, friend. The very same word given to Abraham. A friend of God. Jesus, the son of God, declaring this one, the very bottom to be friend. Um, that's quite a title. That you are the friend of God. Though your status, though your reputation, though your place in this religious system has cast you out as an enemy and even a sinner and an outcast, when Jesus sees him, the very first word out of his mouth, I believe his friend. The same title of Abraham, the friend of God. Um, And it's a setup of full forgiveness, free forgiveness through the words of Jesus can be given to one considered the bottom rung, a sinner. To a paralytic, who catch this, can do nothing to earn salvation. Nothing. He can do nothing to earn it. And Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven, my friend. Um, That is a remarkable statement. If you can imagine all the things I just said, all the different, uh, what society would have thought of this person, no, could not be a friend. Let's make sure he's not around. Let's make sure he stays on the outskirts. Let's make sure we don't get around him because he clearly has generational sin and there's something wrong with him long in his family line. He should not be considered, not only should he not be considered a friend, but how could you ever forgive this one's sin? They must run deep, wide, and long. And so man has a problem with this. Um, 
So what's the nature of human religion? The nature of human religion, church, the nature that if we're not careful, even in this place, in your seat right now, our default sort of stature, how we think it should work and how we're tempted to believe it does work every single day if we don't come back and repent and believe the gospel is that we earn God's favor by continual diligence and continual, continual religious rule keeping. And here, Jesus looks at this one on the lowest rung, could earn nothing, could do nothing, had no literal leg to stand on. I wasn't meaning to say that, but it just came out, right? (laughs) He says, you're forgiven through nothing you've done. It's tough to do anything when you're a paralytic. It's faith. Verse 20, seeing their faith, He said, you're forgiven. That pronouncement is revolutionary. That you can be made right with God by trusting in the words and the decree of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Wonderful. Your heart should soar at that reality. Look at the response. But some don't. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And here we have a conflict here of human fallen legalistic reasoning and the revelation of the word of God. A conflict between reason and revelation. Reason and revelation, right? So remember, You sitting here today, your reality, your entire upbringing, your entire life, my entire life, the Pharisees' entire life, the scribes' entire life. So let's not just say how foolish of them, remember? Our entire worldview, our entire way of living our lives is legalistic. In almost every facet of our lives is legalistic. You get the degree you have because you worked really hard. I was just talking to someone just before service started, Cameron, who's going through med school and he's about to take all these tests and it's hard work. And he's like, he's, he talked about, I'm, gonna, I'm going home today and I just have to study for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. It is hard work and you put in the hard work and you grit through it and you grind through it and you, then you get the grade you'd hope for. That, that's, that's the waters we swim in. No one in here, if you're married, got married by grace alone, I hope. I hope you're not like with your spouse and you're at dinner and they're like, hey, so how did you meet? Well, he's a real uh, sorry person and I married him by grace alone. He didn't deserve it. I don't really like him that much, but by grace alone, I said, you know what, let's do it. No, no, you didn't get married that way, at least I hope. If you did, uh, let's book some counseling appointments because there's a lot of things going on there. But you got married because you put in the work. You, you, you landed your, your spouse, so to speak, because uh, you tried to polish up all the things you knew that weren't very good about you. And at least maybe you fooled them for a little bit. You worked out a little bit more. You ate a little bit better. You wooed that person. You made them laugh a few times. You took them out to a nice meal. You, all of, it, you had to walk through these things so that you spent time together. And you sort of, in some way, you, you earned it. You, it doesn't just happen. Um, you get your paycheck every week. Not because someone just is like, oh, by grace alone, here you go. 
have some cash, have fun, whatever you want to do. It doesn't matter. You got to work at it. And if you don't, you get fired. That's the reality of how most things in our lives work. You get raises and advancements in your career because you work for new achievements and accomplishments and you're proven to say that you can do this really well and you climb up and up and up and you're striving for and you're grasping for. So legalism can be a very beautiful thing. It can be a very good thing in those realities, in those realms, but know this about ourselves, because our entire world operates in such a way, we, you and I, have a very hard time with the decree of Jesus looking at the lowest rung of society and giving him that which is the most precious thing of all, salvation from God above. What? He did nothing. Um, So just like the Pharisees, we are prone to believe that our favor with God is, lies in the area of us earning it from him by our good deeds, our good actions, our tradition, and all of these other things. And they're gonna come in direct conflict with the authority and the words and the ministry of Christ. Christ and man are gonna conflict here. Grace and works are going to conflict here. And they're so deeply embedded in even us that it's hard for us. It's, it's easy to hear and say, yeah, okay. But when you think about it, it's so difficult to really grasp and understand. Verse 21, their reaction, I would imagine, would be much like ours. Who is this that speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? In other words, how could he take the sovereign prerogative of God? Only God can forgive sins. How can through Christ and his decree, his words alone, how can through Jesus a man find that which only God could give? Forgiveness and friendship with God. Um. Only Jesus can do this. Church, remember in the end, there will be a a, a feast, a glorious feast of the redeemed. Um, A feast of the lamb and it will be with all people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who by faith have come to Christ and have trusted in the good news of this gospel. And many of us, I believe, would look at some that we're sitting next to and we would think they have no business sitting there and we would bristle, and we would even have a hard time. I don't even know if I want them sitting next to me. Because it is by his words alone. Um, Church, our default way of thinking about salvation and the ways in which we are to please God is oftentimes in direct opposition to the gospel and to the words of Christ. We tend to believe that our human reasoning and our religious resume and adherence to religious practice will save us. That our goodness means that we are better than these bad people who are nothing like us. So we deserve to be here, but they don't. We're a lot like the Pharisees that way. And I think Luke wants us to see that in some ways. Well, the religious leaders... um, have this conflict that salvation is by faith 
And it is in violent conflict to their human reason and what they think of as religion. They think, how can this be? And so now as we move on through the gospel of Luke, we're gonna have a fight on our hands. And we're gonna have a fight on our hands with stuff that I think we still fight about. So this is an old fight, but it's still a fight today, I believe, with Christ and works and grace and faith, and they're always in conflict with each other. And Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, which is an amazing statement, he knows their thoughts, he's God, he knows all things, uh, asks them a question, verse 22. Um, he said, let's not, let's not just reason about this. Let's prove it. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? Now, the answer to that question is it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Because why? You don't have to prove it. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven because you don't have to prove it. It's hard to say rise and walk to the paralytic because you can show that to be false or true by their ability to either pick up the mat and walk or just lie there. So it's hard to say rise and walk. And so Jesus says, let's do something. Let me show you that my words, my pronouncement, my decree is final and full. And the thought is, goes like this. If I can take a man that is a paralytic with no strength and make him fully whole, would you believe that I can take a man with no righteousness of his own at the very bottom of the rung, a man destined to a life of begging, and I can make him completely forgiven? It's a beautiful parallelism here. Would you believe my first statement if I can do the second one? So verse 24. And he says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. Uh, This man's legs were probably sticks, atrophied. We don't know how long he hadn't walked, but uh, there was no muscle in them. If you were a paralytic and you had no muscle left in your legs and you'd been bound to a mat for a number of even months, but probably what's happening here was years, there's no way you could just get up and use those atrophied legs to walk. And so what we see here is a miraculous sign of someone being made whole, being made completely whole. It's an instant, full healing. It's a wholeness in this man, much like we saw last week with the leper. And this is the same exact way. And the point here that Luke is driving home about Jesus is this is the way we come to faith in Christ. We do not have to go through the rungs of the ladder to earn our way. We don't have to go through some self-imposed purgatory state to try to earn the pronouncement of God, to work out our legs to get them better. When you're declared, 
declared forgiven, you're called friend of God, and you are healed of Christ, and you are saved of Christ, you don't have to go through a program of rehabilitation to earn your salvation. It is immediate, and it is applied to you instantly by the word and decree of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? That is very good news. That is very good news. And you pick up your mat on the strength of what God has done for you and in you, and you stand and you walk. This is exactly how justification by faith works. The decree of Christ, you are instantly saved. And incidentally, if you struggle with this, you're like, what? Maybe you grew up in a church that didn't teach this or didn't proclaim this. But what about this? And what about shouldn't I have to do this? And how could God look at me like that? I would encourage you to read a book that God has given to us in the Bible that answers that very question. God rose up one who was brilliant in his understanding of the Old Testament and of law uh, and wrote a book to Israel who had a great problem with Jesus that a man could be saved by Christ alone and the man's name is Paul and the book is Romans. And you can read all about how we are saved instantaneously by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. Take up your mat and go home. So revolutionary statement matched by revolutionary action by saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ And now we have a protest. Man doesn't reason like this. Of Christ giving what only God can give, healing and wholeness and forgiveness. Um, How could this be? How could Jesus alone make a paralytic walk and make a sinner a friend of God? Now, I think there's two types of people, maybe even in this room today. Um, There's one who hears this message of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive the very lowest on the totem pole. And we hear that in our hearts soar and rejoice at that good news because you have come to understand the gravity and the severity of your sin and that on your own accord, you have nothing to bring to God. You have nothing to bring to him that would earn merit or favor with a holy God. And so you hear this reality and you think, praise be to Jesus. I just want to worship him because I'm just like this paralytic. My heart soars and sings at the good news of the gospel and you, and you want to just rejoice and you want to sing about it. And your heart exalts in the good news. But I think there's another person possibly in this room are probably even probably in this room. And it's the self-righteous person. Um, And if you're self-righteous and you love your religious resume and you've grown up in it and you've done a lot and you've achieved a lot and you've climbed the religious ladder and you've got the merit badges to prove it and you've got all the things, you've got all the accoutrements to say how great you are in the kingdom of God because of X, Y, and Z, you hear this and it's difficult for you to hear. Why? Because it's just declared all the currency you've tried to build up as bankrupt in the economy of God and the glories of the gospel. And so it can be interpreted as bad news and that's how the Pharisees heard it. What? How could this be? 
You mean we're on level playing field? Yes. Um, And so I think it's meant to uh, this story. If you hear that, you're like, oh, it's meant to do work in your heart. To have us understand that it's, it's the empty hands of faith we bring. It's just the decree of Jesus that makes us healed and forgiven and whole, nothing of our own. Not to say that doing all these things is bad, but they do not save you. We tend to make secondary things, ultimate things, and we prop them up in a place they were never meant to live because only Jesus can take that place and should live in that place on the throne. And so no matter what you think you bring to the table, it pales in comparison to the decree of this one Jesus and his word and his salvation. This story reminds me of Psalm 103 as we conclude. Because um, at the very end of this, the leper, or I'm sorry, the paralytic leaves glorifying God. I mean, that's the only right, right response praising God for this reality. And here we have in Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity and who heals all your diseases. Church, Jesus does that. So I implore you today, if you do not know him, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and Jesus alone for the cleansing, healing, and forgiveness we also desperately need. Um, You are not going to earn your, your favor with God by meeting a long list and meriting his forgiveness, but Jesus and Jesus alone can meet all that is required and he can immediately forgive you and cleanse you and heal you, and he has authority to do so as the very son of God. All of our sins against God that we all commit can be forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is willing, as we learned last week. And he is able, as we learned this week. He forgives and he makes whole. And he did, he alone did, what needed to happen in order to secure that forgiveness, the sinless savior, this one here in this story that said rise and walk, he ultimately went to the cross and he died and he traded places with us. He became unclean so that we could become clean. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Remember in the story, he perceived all of their thoughts You cannot hide from Jesus. You cannot hide your sin from Jesus. You can't even hide your thoughts from Jesus. This text tells us that he can perceive our very thoughts. He knows all that we're thinking. He knows all of our motivations. He's omniscient. And so what do we do? We go to the only one who can forgive all of our actions, all of our thoughts, and all of our motives and declare to us forgiven in him. And it's free because he paid all of it to the uttermost. 
in this church should cause our hearts to soar with gratitude and to soar with praise. They should spill out as we consider this reality. Luke will tell us later as we walk through this gospel that whoever has been forgiven much loves much, and I've been forgiven of much. I don't know about you, but I've been forgiven of much. So church, let's be a people who in that reality are quick to forgive others as well, an application. Let's not hold grudges. Jesus has offered us forgiveness by nothing that we've done, but by his good merit. He's cleansed us, therefore let us forgive others as well in that same way. Let's take Paul's words in Ephesians 4, that those who have received forgiveness be kind and tenderhearted, forgiving others as Christ Jesus has forgiven us. And how has he forgiven us, as we just read? Fully and freely. And church, in in light of application as well, as we consider this passage, um, let's follow Jesus in this way as we minister to whoever the untouchables in our society are. Who are the lowest rung? Who are those that we wouldn't even consider, should they even be at the table? Well, let's invite them in. There's room. Let's open wide the doors because we have been forgiven much. We have nothing to stand on but the blood of our Savior who has fully and freely forgiven us. And we too, like Christ, should open wide our arms to those who are in desperate need of this love and forgiveness. Let's invite them in, invite them into this place, invite them into our lives and into our homes that they may taste and see the goodness of this one that has come, that has the power and authority to forgive and to heal and make whole. That's what we are all longing for. Jesus alone can do it. He's worthy. Let's pray together this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you can look at all of us who are sinners and by your decree, you can call us friend. And not only do you say it, but you prove it by making us whole through your declared word and your decree. And so God, our hearts rejoice in the reality that we have to do nothing to merit our salvation, but you have done it all through the sending of your son. And we praise you today for him. And so God, I, I, I pray for anyone in here that doesn't know you. Lord, would they run to the savior? Would they run to you, Lord Jesus? And would they declare their sin and would they receive the words of Jesus saying you are forgiven in me? And Lord, may that erupt our hearts in praise. May we, we, may we be a people um, in these next few moments as we respond. Would we rejoice loudly at our glorious salvation found in the Lord Jesus Christ here this morning. And if you've been going to church a long, long time and you have quite a resume, would you marvel and would you come to him with the empty hands of faith, with a childlike faith, And would you let the grace of the Lord Jesus land on you in a fresh way this morning? Hearing his decree and his word fall afresh on you with fresh ears and a new heart and respond in thanksgiving and adoration and praise at the good news of our salvation, that we are loved by God through his son 
who atones for our sin at the cross and, and rose again and is now ruling and reigning at his right hand. Jesus, you are good. We thank you for our salvation. And God, I pray that these next few moments would be pleasing to you as we, like the paralytic, glorify God. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Would you stand? Let's pray as loudly this morning.